0: Welcome back to the program. Even today, 15 months before Election Day, we're in full political campaign season. And while we hear a lot of loose talk about issues, it's easy to forget that politics is about both the art of governing, leading, and doing so in the real world of compromise and possibilities. Even with all the problems of our health care system today, doctors usually go into medicine because they have a calling, a desire to help people. And while it's hard to believe sometimes, many politicians also have a calling and go into it because they have a desire to use the levers of policy to make the world a better place. For my guest, Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill, this seems true. Since Missouri became a state 194 years ago, she's the first woman to serve as its United States Senator. She's just written her memoir entitled Plenty Ladylike, and it is my pleasure to welcome Senator Claire McCaskill to the program. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for me. It's great to have you here. It's hard to believe that in 194 years, you're the first woman to serve as a United States Senator from Missouri.
1: Well, I like to remind people that um, there have only been 44 women United States Senators in the history of our country. And it wasn't until just a few decades ago that women started getting elected in their own right. The vast majority of, of those women up until the 80s all were appointed to serve out terms after their husband had died. So this is a relatively new thing in our country, uh, women in the United States Senate uh, that have actually fought through the political underbrush uh, to get into um, a, a body of 100 that has the ability to make very important decisions in our lives.
0: But what's not new for you, though, is, is an interest in politics. You grew up, uh, as you write about it, in a political household, in a place that, that politics was talked about. You had parents that were interested in politics.
1: I was told to say trick-or-treat and vote for JFK when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but my parents, I want to make sure people understand, my parents weren't politically powerful. My parents were the kind of people who showed up um, to stuff envelopes. My parents were the kind of people who volunteered um, to distribute signs. Um, they were interested, but they were, not, uh, they were a common variety, which I think is so important in this country, and that is citizens who believed it was important to get involved. And they imparted that to us, and they never made us believe that people who did this were bad guys. Um, I didn't get that cynicism in my household that all the politicians are crooks and thieves, and that they're all a bunch of jerks. I got, um, there's some very important people who are doing their very best to make our country better.
0: And we've gotten so far away from that today. As you say, we certainly have a pretty cynical outlook. And the sense of, of people making a difference, being involved, being able to stuff envelopes and have an impact, we've gotten so far away from that, it's come with a price.
1: It has come with a price, and I think Citizens United is probably the most corrosive uh, decision that has been made in our country, because I think what we're going to see this presidential cycle is an unprecedented an unprecedented shopping for billionaires. These presidential candidates are spending very little time um, really trying to go broad in terms of support financially, and they're spending a whole lot of time Finding a billionaire for their super PACs, they're dwarfing the amount of money that's being raised by candidates. Is dwarfed by the amount of money that's being put in by very few people in this country into these super PACs. And I think that um, I, I think that the Supreme Court, while we want to support the First Amendment, there is always a balancing test in our country when it comes to Supreme Court decisions. And I think they had the balance wrong because on one side is free speech, but the other side is the belief that citizens still have a say in their government. And that's an important American value that we have to protect.
0: What we seem to have going on is this very negative feedback loop right now. And Citizens United, as you say, is certainly part of that People feel disenfranchised, disempowered as a result of, of what we're talking about. As a result, we're getting a lot of anger that we see directed towards candidates that are outside, far, far outside the mainstream. And this anger tends to self-perpetuate itself because of this sense of disenfranchisement.
1: You know, I, I, I like to, um, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, you know, I I like to think of my state, my state is a tough state, as you said, we're Almost 200 years old, and we've been conflicted from the very beginning. We couldn't make up our mind in the Civil War. Uh, it is certainly not a blue state. I like to tease my friends Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein <laughs> that um, their their electorate is slightly different than mine. And um, I, I I think in my state I have about 35 percent that are going to Fox News for affirmation, not information. I have about 30 percent that are going to MSNBC for affirmation and not information, and the rest of them are watching Dancing with the Stars and they think we're all crazy. And those people that are watching Dancing with the Stars and are not engaged on a daily basis, they want us to compromise. The people on either end are screaming at us to hold our ground and be principled and not compromise the far left and the far right. But it's really um, the, the, the people in the middle in my state that decide elections. And even though they're not calling me, and I tell people all the time, how many times have you called your elected official and asked them to compromise? That's not the noise we hear. We, help, we hear all the anger and all the rigid ideology that keeps us from being able to be pragmatic and getting things done.
0: It also seems that we're going backwards in so many ways. Certainly, the racial issues, the racial divisions that are at the heart of politics in your state right now, issues of gender, which which you talk a lot about in plenty, ladylike, we see played out on, on the national stage in the exchange between Donald Trump and Megyn Kelly. That we seem to be going backwards in so many ways. I,
1: I, I um, the book is 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 um painfully personal in in many ways because i talk about my first marriage and i talk about um being a single mom and i talk about all the guilt associated with being a mom but i spend a lot of time talking about my mom and uh, how amazing she was even when i didn't know it in terms of role modeling for me And i'll never forget near the end of my campaign uh, mom was very ill and i came up and she was living with me and i came home late after campaigning and was up in her room and the room was dark and we were watching the evening news together and was talking about um, the affordable health care and the controversy over contraception and birth control. And she looked over at me and and she was, you know, in her 80s and she said, honey, I am so sorry. And I said, well, mom, what are you sorry about? And she said, I thought we handled this. (laughs) I thought we got the birth control thing done for you. I didn't realize you were going to have to fight this all over again. And it is discouraging. And I think people need to be very wary of the fact that um, you now have major presidential candidates saying they don't even want to rape an incest exception to abortion restrictions. I mean, that is, um, I think, shocking. And I think it, it, it's one of those things I hope motivates people to pay attention and get involved next year. It's going to be really key.
0: And yet, on the other side, seven years after the election of Barack Obama, look at the racial situation in your own state.
1: You know, and, and part of that is certainly um, uh, appropriate in that the, the national profile that occurred after Ferguson, but it also is a symptom of the media today because um, while we have real issues of diversifying our police departments and cleaning up municipal courts so they're not a revolving door towards poverty for those who, who can least afford to pay fines on low-level offenses, and while we've got to work on housing integration and public education and urban core, um, these are problems that are everywhere in this country. These are not just in Missouri, but the media, um, there were many times in the aftermath of the, the shooting of Michael Brown that I counted, I physically counted, and there were five cameras per protester. I went to a protest one day in Clayton, and they had said there was going to be a protest, and the media blew it up so much that there was going to be a protest in the downtown area of St. Louis County that all the businesses shut down. So I go over there because I'm wanting to you know be there and see what's going on, and literally there were less than two dozen people protesting, and there were dozens of satellite trucks. Dozens. And, you know, I finally said to Jake Capper one day, go home. What are you doing? Why are you continuing to act as if this the, the vast majority of the people here are not now in real earnest conversations about how to make things better? Um, that's another part of this I, I want to point out to people because it's a real issue.
0: Is it just that, that these are the latest incidents and they're getting all of the press attention and the extreme media coverage clearly as you talk about Or is it simply that it is reflective of what we're seeing throughout the country? And and the focus may be on Ferguson at the moment, but the problem exists everywhere.
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, I'm a former prosecutor, so I've spent many years of my life working directly with the police. And I have seen what happens when you squeeze resources on policing. There is not the resources or the time of the officers, to do the community-based work that makes such a difference. When we did community policing in the 90s, I saw firsthand, I was the elected DA in Kansas City, I saw firsthand how we got more cooperation from people in the neighborhoods helping us solve crimes. Because in, in, in Kansas City, like in all major cities, yes, the majority of the people who were prosecuted were African-American, but the majority of the victims were African-American. And so it was one of those things that I felt an obligation to make those neighborhoods more safe for the wonderful, God-loving, hardworking people who live there. And um, community policing worked. We even in, in put in a community prosecution model so that one prosecutor would be handling the cases from a, a neighborhood so that the neighbors would get to know even the prosecutor. Uh, those things work. But in this era of we've got to make sure we don't spend any money, um, which I understand, we have really shortchanged the community part of policing. And I hope that what we've seen in terms of what I believe are outliers, but nonetheless real abuses by police departments towards African Americans across this country, that we get back to a community policing model.
0: Even though we need to focus on community policing, what has to happen in Washington? What has to happen where you are? in terms of, of public policy that begins to address this issue on a broader level?
1: Well, I think we can set the example for criminal justice reform. I don't think most Americans understand that about 98% of the crime in this country is prosecuted at the state level. Uh, federal prosecutors don't even have jurisdiction on most 911 calls. They couldn't prosecute it if they wanted to. So, um, but we could do criminal justice reform at the federal level, And by that, I mean we have 95% of the people in the federal penitentiary are nonviolent offenders. 95% are nonviolent offenders. And we spend $7 billion a year. Uh, That's ridiculous. There are other ways we can hold people accountable besides paying for an expensive bed for them. Um, I started one of the first drug courts in the country along with uh, uh, a judge from out here, Judge Chauvin from the San Francisco Bay Area. He was one of the pioneers uh, that was part of a small group across the country that began drug courts in the 90s, and they have worked. It's a therapeutic-based court. It's where you hold people accountable and make them get off drugs, make them go to work, make them get an education. But at the end of it, once they have succeeded in doing that, you dismiss the charges against them, so they don't have that anchor around their neck for the rest of their life in terms of a conviction. Um, it is, it, the recidivism rate is very low. There are many other therapeutic-based courts and re-entry courts that we could embrace at the federal level and provide some seed funding to state courts to do that like they did in the 90s and and on with drug courts. And that's what I think we can begin to work on with some earnest in Washington. And I will tell you, I see some green shoots of optimism because there's actually some bipartisan interest in this. Uh, We actually had a hearing in one of my committees a few weeks ago and that committee was, was uh, is chaired, obviously, by a Republican now, and he's the one who called the committee about criminal justice reform at the federal level. So I think now is the time that we really could come together in this country and take a look at our incarceration rates and really question whether or not they're getting anything done that... that is healthy for our, our communities and for our country.
0: What are the events that have come together to make this a possibility at this point? The president obviously sees the same opportunity, his recent visit, the first president to visit a, a federal prison. What is it that has come together at this moment? What's the perfect storm that, that really creates an opportunity to address these issues?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, I can't speak for my Republican colleagues as to why they appear to have some interest in it. But um, for some, it's a libertarian streak about the legalization of marijuana and other substances. For some, it's a fiscal issue that the war on drugs has been incredibly expensive but not particularly effective. We now have a heroin epidemic epidemic gripping this country. Obviously, these long minimum mandatory drug sentences have done nothing um, to really change whether or not um, illegal drugs in this country are um, finding their way into families and and causing great destruction. So I think it is um, that, along with uh, a social justice for many of us on the Democratic side, uh, realizing that, that many communities have been decimated by the incarceration of young African-American men and how we must uh, take steps to um, break a cycle of So few men in the households and so few role models because that the the norm in way too many communities across our country is that uh, the chances are good that if you're a young African-American man, you end up arrested with a felony and most of the time in prison.
0: What? prevents you and, and your colleagues in Washington from becoming cynical about these issues, not, not just criminal justice, but but all these policy issues we've touched upon, and, and a sense that anything can actually get done, especially now that we're 15 months out from an election?
1: Well, um, from my perspective, I, I do a lot of oversight. In the book, I talk about um, the significant amount of work I've done in the area of military contracting Um, cleaning up earmarks. Uh, There's oversight work you can do even if you're not passing legislation. And I, you know, I I don't know how to really explain how I don't get cynical, but I I know this sounds kind of goofy and and weird, but, I I mean, I get goosebumps when I drive to work still. um, I go early, and at a certain point in time when I'm pulling up the street... There's almost a pink wash over the dome because of where the sun is in the sky. And I look at that, and I just can get teary-eyed. I can get teary-eyed thinking about it. I feel incredibly blessed uh, to have this opportunity. I'm a policy wonk. I get to attack different issues every day. And I am a moderate, so I am somebody who's trying to pull people in from the ends to find solutions. And so as a result, when we do get things done, I'm usually in the thick of it. So I, I know how great this country is, and I understand people's frustrations, but it certainly has not discouraged me um, from, from going at it every day. I tell kids all the time when I give uh, high school graduation speeches, you know, success is not what you own. It's not the stuff you buy. Success is loving what you do. And I can't wait to get out of bed every morning and do my job. And if you read the book, you'll see that I had some amazingly difficult things happen to me in my career, especially as a young single woman in the legislature, where um, I was uh, seriously harassed and seriously discriminated against. Um, I had colleagues, one colleague called me a whore on the floor of the Senate. I had another colleague, the Speaker of the House in Missouri, when I asked him how I could get my bill out of committee, he asked me if I brought my knee pads, um, that those things happened along the way. But in spite of all that, I have still loved my work every, every single day.
0: Senator Claire McCaskill, her memoir is Plenty Ladylike. It is just out from Simon & Schuster. Senator, I thank you so much for spending time with us while you're here in the Bay Area.
1: It was terrific. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.